Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, <clears throat> I have fallen in love with the book of Philippians. And this has been a very profitable study for myself already. And uh, what a joy it is to have this letter from Paul to the Philippian church. This series is aiming to show, in, in my opinion, one thing. One specific thing is that Paul, through the words that he uses, expresses his love for the Philippians and gives them many examples of that love as it shows the glory of Jesus Christ and informs how we are to live in the light of that glory. And so earlier in the prior chapter, we have seen how Paul was encouraging his readers with the knowledge of his special love for them. Just as a father would for his children, he makes his love known to the Philippians. He makes his suffering on their behalf known to them, and then he invites them into the very same conflict. And by invites, I do not mean that Paul himself granted to the Philippians, but that God granted to the Philippians. And as an apostle, he is wanting to draw the church up into her understanding as the apostolic church, the church that is engaged in the same conflict with the apostles, which is the context for the first verse first verses in this chapter. So this message is how we are to be thinking after Christ. By using the word after, I do not mean after in the sense of time. I do not mean we were thinking one way before Christ came, and now we are thinking another way after Christ has come, although the New Testament does use that language. Um, however, what I am 
saying in this title is calling us to think in the pattern of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is doing in this passage as he's enumerating the glories of Jesus Christ in his incarnation, death, and ascension as an example for us. This is a a great danger in the overemphasis of the atonement of the cross to the neglection or the neglecting of the idea that the cross and everything that Christ did in in preparing to go to the cross and, and after the cross is also an example. Many people pit the two against each other. No, the cross was just an example, or no, the cross was all about the atonement. And the New Testament, the scriptures indeed, all of them present it as both. And so Paul uses the mind of Christ as a uh, canvas, if you will, for training the Philippians how they should consider to suffer and how they should be prepared to suffer. So I want to look at four aspects of this reading. First is the unity in the church that is commendable or is uh, worthy of praise. It's praiseworthy that must be set in, uh, in motion. It must be established by these Philippian Christians. And we're going to look at why Paul encourages them to this because of the unique challenge that persecution has for a Christian people. And the reason I say a Christian people is it's very clear that these passages, these first few verses uh, of Philippians 2, 1 through 4, show a community aspect to these commands. These commands cannot be lived out apart from in the context of a fellowship of believers. Then I want to look at how Paul uses the life of Christ and exposes Christ's thinking processes and reasoning processes, both mental and emotional reasoning, as an example for the Philippian Christians to imitate. So Paul, by the Spirit, sees something in the life of Jesus Christ through the Gospels and is able to understand, being a receiver of the transmission of the tradition, he reflects upon the mind which was in Christ and then says to the Philippians, this is yours. Therefore, you must know what that mind looks like. And then finally, we are going to see how he then applies that again to the church, giving them positive commands for holiness as to how they are to work out their salvation. We're going to look very briefly at what that means to work out their salvation. And then finally, to how to rejoice in mutual suffering. Really, this is the, the theme of Philippians. It's how do the Christians in this church love one another and love the larger church outside of that city, not only Paul, but also the other churches? How do they love each other in such a way as to strengthen one another by honoring one another above themselves? And the question, the great question of this passage is, how can you possibly do that? How can you honor someone more than yourself? Because if you honor someone more than yourself and are willing to suffer on their sake, you will be diminished. And so that is the great problem of this love which has to abound in the Philippian church. It's they're facing persecution, and in the midst of persecution, the tendency is to take care of home base and to make sure my family is put in order and to make sure I'm doing well. And he commands them to imitate Christ in being outwardly focused. And the command to be outwardly focused must therefore be done understanding how Christ did it himself. So Paul has just emboldened the Philippians in the last few verses of the prior chapter. If you were not here last week, we examined how Paul brought the Philippians up into the conflict of the apostles. He is not an apostle who says, I'm an apostle and I'm engaged in the suffering, therefore you must support me. He actually wants to elevate the perspective of his hearers so that they would understand that the faith and the conflict against that faith is the same. If you remember, we referenced 2 Peter chapter 1, the, the greeting, 
Peter addresses the saints who have obtained a faith of like standing of ours. What a wonderful promise for we who are separated in time. We have a faith in like standing with Peter and James and John and Andrew, Nathaniel. These are our brothers in the faith. And just as James said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed and it didn't rain. And then it did rain. This is, this is what Paul is doing. He's wanting to elevate his hearers to know that they're not second-class citizens in the kingdom and therefore they should not expect to escape persecution nor should they expect to withstand persecution any other way except the way Christ and the apostles are withstanding that persecution. He begins, therefore, to command them how they are to relate to one another in the midst of this conflict. And it's very interesting to me, as we're going to see in a moment, everything here considers how they are to treat one another in the church. Verse 1, So, in the light of the fact that you are in the same conflict, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Very quickly, from the first verse of this chapter, this word sympathy demonstrates a mutual suffering. Sympathy is formed from two words, sim and pathos. And pathos means to suffer, and sim means with. So if you think of a symphony... It is a group of people who are playing together. They're making funny sound. They're making it together in such a way as they complement each other. The basses create a foundation in which the high melodies can sing and soar. And there is a wonderful, beautiful harmony as these two things are brought together, as these many instruments work together. He says that they are to simply, They are to suffer with each other in Christ. That's a provision that Christ has given to the church. Here Paul demonstrates that he truly loves these Philippians because he says, do these things so my joy can be made complete. It's a very interesting thing, but when we consider what Paul is saying, he's saying that I am in, I am rejoicing, I am filled with joy when you are blessed and strengthened and are expressing the fruit of faith and holiness. That when you do what is pleasing to God, it's pleasing to me. I'm delighted in it. I find my joy in it. Paul's joy is completed by the Philippians' obedience. He says, complete my joy. So we know that Paul had joy in the Philippians beginning to believe and beginning to walk out their faith. And now he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, being of the same purpose. When these Philippian Christians are blessed with holiness, he is blessed with happiness. And this is in total contradistinction from the preachers of the former chapter, those who were preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. We saw how Paul was warning the Philippians that there is a spiritual danger in preaching Christ, which is the subtle secondary motivation of the preacher to be glorious in the church or to be honored by men instead of doing what is pleasing to the Lord. And so here we see Paul is really loving these people. He's not merely thinking about them in emotional ways or having some sort of sentimentality about the Philippians, but he is actually loving these Philippians. Why? Because his desire is for their greatest good. That's what love is. It is so dangerous for us in the American church today because the world has put forth a vision of love which is the simple toleration of and emotional uh, effervescent bubbling up of, of feelings for one another, but love is desiring your neighbor's good. This is why there cannot be love in, for example, 
the LGBT community. There cannot be love in that community because it's not a community, because they're not seeking each other's good. This is why we have to be trained by the scriptures, because the world is at war with God's ways and God's love. And so he's saying to the Philippians, be of one purpose, have real life together by counting each other as more honorable than yourselves. He says, establish true community around Christ. Though these Philippian Christians face outside persecution, all of Paul's commands regard how they are to treat each other inside the church. It's very important that we see this dimension. Every single thing he tells them to do has to do with how they relate to one another, not how they're responding to the persecution. In the face of persecution that is being brought low in the world, the flesh that exists still in the believers will desire to be puffed up and made much of. This is a spiritual danger that we must know because if we are not understanding where the flesh wants to rise up and, and kill us, we will not know when to be on guard. I've experienced this many times in the realm of physical endurance. Whenever you spend a lot of physical activity, whenever you spend a lot of physical energy, what's, what's the thing you want the most, right? Something that you love to eat or a very long nap or something delicious to drink. That's an analogy. The human flesh wants to get back to equilibrium. But the spiritual flesh, that is the old man, the old nature which has been put to death and we are still called to put it to death, wants to rise back up. Paul is a master physician of the human soul. He knows that in the face of this persecution, they're going to want to boast and be puffed up and be made much of individually because out there they're being brought low and they're being considered as nothing and they're being trampled on by men. And so he guards them by telling them to adopt the mind of Christ and to consider one another as more honorable or, or greater than themselves. The struggles against the enemies out there reveals the terrible, terrible problems in here. You see, there are many terrible problems in this church, and they are my flesh and they are your flesh. Those are terrible problems that without the aid of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, we cannot continue to sustain the victory of Christ over them, and unless we be killing them, they will be killing us. The problems really are not out there, is what Paul's saying. You might you might think the problems are out there. No, the problems are right here. They're in us. And so therefore, he tells them to put to death the sins that so easily plague them. Verse 3, look at this. This has nothing to do with the outside persecution. He gives them positive commands as to how they are to relate to one another in the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others. Notice that word count. That'll be a very important word. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. The command to care here is not some reciprocal economy. Uh, there is a, a phrase called a gift economy, which is a very helpful understanding. It's when we don't really exchange goods and services for money, we just exchange goods and services because of abundance, because I know when I scratch your back, you'll eventually scratch mine. Paul is not telling them to just establish favors in the church because this has a, a goal greater than the, the exaltation of self. You see, if it's a gift economy, if it's just some sort of reciprocity loop where I do something good for you, now you feel obliged to do something good for me, I'm creating shame in the giving of the gift. And really, my goal is that I would be blessed because I'll give you something, but what I'm really into is you giving it back to me. That's not at all what the Christian community is. This is not some human-level, human-initiated fellowship of people who are in similar socioeconomic statuses. 
or classes of races or ethnic groups. The Christian community is founded upon the goal of honoring Christ by imitating Christ. It is totally different than a human society. If it were the case, it would be no different from simple self-interest. Paul has already given them a very small taste of what it looks like to be desiring the other's good. He said, complete my joy by being filled with the fruit of God's spirit. That Paul is blessed when they are blessed. Not because their blessing feeds back to Paul, but because Paul wants to glorify Christ. And Paul is expecting to be repaid not by the Philippians, but by God. Which is exactly where he's going in just a moment. The question is, how can we count others more significant than ourselves? How do we do this? The word count here is very important in this passage, and it will reverberate through the rest of the chapters. He uses this word to say that there was a mental reasoning that is necessary for the Philippians, that in, when they tally up the scales, when they balance the balance sheet, when they level the registers, they need to come to an equation where others are more important than they. That's what he says. Work out the math so that you're doing something for other people, not for yourself. The question is, the great dilemma in this passage is this. If I am concerned with my neighbor's interests, if I count you as better than me, or more worthy to be served, more worthy of my energies and efforts, I'll be diminished. Right? I mean, just very simple human-level realities of scarcity of time, scarcity of economics, whatever you want. If I am taken up with your concerns, who will attend to my concerns? If I'm invested in beautifying, glorifying, strengthening your life, I'll be diminished. So how can I be motivated to not work out the calculus that way, but to work it out in such a way as I willingly joyfully work for your good. How do I do that? Paul answers this question immediately and directly, beginning in verse 5 with a positive command tied to the historic event of Christ's life and death. I'm going to say that again because it's, it's not very simple what he is doing. He, he gives them a command. He says, have this mind in you, and then he begins to tell a story of what that mind looked like and what that mind is. This mindset, or the, the mind which they are to have in them, this mindset was, was a spiritual possession, is a spiritual possession, which all the believers in Jesus Christ have, but are not necessarily using. When Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come, and he will disclose to you the things that are mine, He's talking about this right here. The Holy Spirit has inspired writers to explain to the Christians their spiritual inheritance, which comes through the Word of God. He's saying that my mind, which is going to be yours, you can't bear it now, but there's going to come a helper, and he'll bring everything into your remembrance and it'll lead you into all the truth. Being led into all the truth is the joyful reception of understanding the life of Jesus Christ, not just as our justification, but as our example by which we must imitate. imitate. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, is yours. So he tells them, you have this, but you might not be using it. You might not be thinking in this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count, again that word count, equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he did not lay aside his divinity, it is important to see in Philippians 2, 7, when Christ comes into the world, he does not stop being God, but he does intentionally, willingly veil 
or shadow or shroud his glory in such a way as it was not generally perceivable. That it could not just be seen with the unaided eye, but it required a revelation from God. Though Christ was glorious with the Father and the Spirit, his very act of coming to the earth was a humbling, limiting of that glory. John tells us in his first chapter, this is the glory which we've seen, the glory as of the only begotten, and then he describes the Son of God as the one who was with the Father in the ESV. In the King James, it uses the one who was in the bosom of the Father. This idea that the Father and the Son were perfectly, wonderfully dwelling together from all eternity past. And whenever the first angels were made, they both began to receive worship and to be seen in their beauty and their glory. And Christ willingly, joyfully set it aside for a time. He did not stop being God, but his glory was veiled for a time and he came and suffered in the earth in flesh. Indeed, some did see his glory, but very few and not by the many. In fact, it says in John that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. The reason his own did not receive him as God is because they couldn't see him as God. And so Jesus Christ set aside the honor, but not his divinity. He set aside the revelation of his glory for a time, except through the Holy Spirit, as the Father was drawing and drawing individuals to come to see Jesus Christ. Christ counted his equal glory with the Father and the Spirit as a thing to be temporarily veiled that he would do the Father's will. If you're looking for a more concrete explanation of this, Hebrews chapter 10 is a wonderful thing. It says that when Christ was coming into the world, he reasoned thus. He said this, burnt offerings and sacrifices you have not desired, but you have prepared for me a body. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. In your scroll, in your book, it's written of me. So he, what Jesus is saying in the incarnation is, I'm coming to do the Father's will. I'm choosing to humble myself so that the Father would be seen as glorious through my obedience. His reasoning, Christ's reasoning, displayed in the incarnation, then further reverberates in his willing and obedient death. I spent a long time looking for that word reverberating. But there are many words that have a similar flavor in English. I thought about echo, but the problem with echoes is echoes diminish each iteration. And I thought of redounding, but redounding is very archaic, and most of us don't use that word. It reverberated. It's like when you get an amplifier, you turn it on a lot, maybe you throw some distortion in there, and then you accidentally put the mic near the speaker. That's what's going on in Christ. Christ's humility in the incarnation expands and develops and matures toward the goal of doing the Father's will, and it explodes at the cross. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ did not become obedient by being killed. He became obedient to the Father's will by willing to be killed, by being willing to be killed. And we see this great dilemma in the Garden of Gethsemane as the Lord Jesus Christ is praying to the Father, not my will, but your will. He says, let this, pass cup, or let this cup pass from me, if possible, but not my will, but your will. It's interesting to me, in Matthew, he prays two times. He doesn't go back a third time. I think that's interesting. I think it shows the yieldness of Christ's heart to do the Father's will. He didn't ask a large number of times to get out of it. He gave his will up to the Father's will. He was able to do this because as he was going to the cross, First Peter tells us, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
There is one who judges justly, and Christ trusted in the Father's eventual vindication. He knew that his hands, that his life was in the hands of the Father, and the Father would do no wrong. Because Jesus has completed the Father's will, therefore, his sentence and death were rendered null and void by the Father. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ was willing to go lower than anyone, and therefore the Father has set him as the king of the universe. Because of Jesus' obedience, he will forever receive glory and honor and praise forever, even by those who do not want to give it. It's a very interesting idea. I want to turn very briefly to Revelation 14. This idea that Christ will be glorified even by those who do not willingly bow the knee seems very strange, and yet it was in the definite plan of God. Verse 9 and 10, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead, we're not going to get started on what that means, or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Christ will be glorified even by those who do not wish to glorify him. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is the great glory that will be given to the one who has done the will of God, which is Jesus Christ and him alone. So Paul directly connects Christ's suffering and his means of obedience in entrusting a future glorification to the way that the Philippians are supposed to think about their life. Therefore, my beloved, as you have also, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we have taught on this passage, I, I've taught on this passage two other times, just focusing on these verses. And there's a lot here. But what Paul is essentially saying is that the Philippians are to work out their salvation. That is to say, they are not to cause their salvation, but to demonstrate it or to flesh it out. When he says work it out or work out your salvation, he means take it to its logical end. If you've been saved and delivered from suffering and delivered from your rebellion against God and the body of the old man has been put to death, if that's all true about you, then go where you're going and go there now. And by that, I do not mean go to heaven now. I mean, live in such a sanctification as you anticipate. If you will live forever with the Lord, then let that information begin to shape and, and change how you live today. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because of the great and glorious calling to which you've been called and because it's God who's working in you at this time. When they kill sin, God kills sin. This is what he's telling them. When they struggle against temptation, God is struggling against temptation. Just consider for a second, you've been invited to... Let's see, who could I use from the national scene? You've been invited to go to Columbus and give a presentation to the Ohio State Legislature. Do you think you would spell check that document? You would spell check that document. You would submit it to review for others to evaluate it. Why? Because of the dignity and the honor of the people before whom you are addressing he says to work out, your fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not because you're going to be found as unable to work out your salvation, but because you're doing these things in God's name and in God's stead. They should not be done lightly. When you think about the temptation to, to give in to sin, you are not availing yourself of the opportunity to express God's will in the earth. 
against that sin. That's why we fear and we tremble. When I was growing up, there was a room in my parents' house that we were not really supposed to go in. And whenever we went into that room, we, we did it for a short amount of time and with, with light steps so that we might not be detected. The point was that we had very little business in that room and we were going somewhere where we knew we ought not to go. And so we did it with the utmost care and, and trepidation. The point is this, these Philippians are supposed to fear and tremble because they are not only walking on holy ground, they themselves have become holy. When Moses approached the burning bush, he took off his sandals and he bowed himself to the earth for the place on which he was standing was holy ground. In the new covenant, those who have been adopted by God, who've been recreated after Christ and have been filled with the Holy Spirit are told that they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The, the priests in the Old Covenant would not walk into the Holy of Holies on any given day. Brothers and sisters, we have a much more glorious covenant. When we refuse to fight sin, we are resisting the will of God. And we are using his temple in our own desire instead of yielding it up as Paul says in, Revel, in Romans 12 verse 1, therefore render to God the sacrificial offering of your bodies, which is your reasonable spiritual worship. This is the point that, that Paul is getting to do the working out of their salvation with fear and trembling means that they consider what is at stake and who who they are representing in their sanctification. The question is, how does God work within them? And I believe the answer is clear, both from the verse 5 as well as the rest of the New Testament and indeed the Old Testament as well. The way that God works in these Philippian Christians and in the Christians in this room and throughout the world is in the moment God supplies the grace and spiritual energy to call to mind the precious promises of God, that by those precious promises and the remembrance of the life of Jesus Christ, they would glorify Christ by imitating the manner of Christ's obedience. That is to say, they wouldn't just be willing to suffer, they would be willing to suffer because they trust God and they know that God will reward them for their suffering. Do you see the difference? Mere human toleration of trials, mere human perseverance in the moment brings no glory to Jesus Christ. However, when we imitate the manner of Christ's obedience, trusting the Father's word of a future glorious present or reward, we then are glorifying God. Why? Because we're saying we trust him. He's trustworthy. It's an act of worship. My perseverance in the moment which is rooted in my own flesh or my own human disdain for the consequences of sin brings no glory to God. However, when I take the promises and command of God and obey in them and obey with that perspective, it demonstrates God as glorious and as joyful and worthy to be obeyed. That's the difference between humanism and Christianity. So, Paul then gives them instructions immediately as how to obey. Look at these verses. Again, remember, they're facing persecution without, and yet everything here has to do with the inner state of the heart and the way that they express themselves in human relationships, the way that they carry out their obedience. And the question is, how would they do this? How would they fulfill these commands? Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I have probably never done anything without grumbling. That's not totally true, but I, I just want to impress upon you to not do something without grumbling means to swallow not only the words, but also the attitudes and to put them to death which revile against your circumstances. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or questioning. 
that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The aim of the working out of their salvation is the killing of sins of the flesh displayed with their mouths. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. These are the fruits of vanity, pride, and self-seeking which destroy human relationships. Have you ever been in a disagreement with a fellow brother or sister or your parents or your father, being that it's Father's Day, or your mother? Have you ever grumbled and questioned and disputed whether something is fair or not? Being reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's what Paul is saying to do, is to allow your mouth to be stopped by the internal restraint produced by the Holy Spirit. How? Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. In this passage here, this word, holding fast, I spent a lot of time trying to diagram this sentence This is a phrase that is an adverbial participle. And if we have been a a while since our eighth grade grammar class, it's okay. You don't need to remember what an adverbial participle is. But essentially what I am hoping to show is that in verse 14 and verse 15, to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you would be seen as blameless and innocent, how do you do those things? you hold fast to the word of life. Holding fast is a modifier on the positive commands or the negative commands to not grumble and to not dispute. Unless you're holding fast to the word, unless you have promises, a remembrance of the things of God, you will not be able to not dispute and not grumble. The not grumbling in the moment is only possible if I'm holding fast to the word of life. That's what Paul is trying to say by by using, when you're doing these things, when you're obeying, that's when you're holding fast to the word of life. James warns us, do not be hearers of the word alone, but also be doers of the word. That's what he's saying. So Paul closes this passage, this section of his letter with a very interesting and somewhat perplexing series of verses. And in fact, when you read them, unless you take the time to meditate on what he's saying, they seem completely disjointed from the rest of this passage. Paul closes this portion of his letter seeming to actually go back against something he had said earlier in the letter. He said, it's my eager expectation to be delivered and to come to you, right? And here he says, even if I am to be poured out. He's doing this because he wants to show the sympathy that he mentioned in verse 1, that suffering together, that sympathy being worked out in a human context, or, or rather a, the context within the church on a human plane, a human level, that they would be a right expression of what it means to suffer together even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Remember, he had shown the spiritual reasoning process by which he said, to go away, to to die is gain, but to live is Christ. I'm hard-pressed. I don't know which one to choose, but I know that if I stay, it will be for your good. Therefore, I'm sure I will remain. And now he says, even if I die, it will be for your gain as well. Verse 18, likewise, you should also rejoice, or excuse me, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. These perplexing sentences seem extremely odd in the context immediately before these verses, but they actually are a beautiful recapitulation or a summing up into one grand expression of everything that he's been talking about to embolden the Philippians to kill the sin of pride. In the Levitical law, the drink offering was poured out upon the roasted grain offering. 
The grain offering was taken and it was placed on a table or a area which it could be roasted. It wasn't like the meat offering, which was over a grate because the grain would just fall through the grate. It was on a girdle or a griddle, excuse me. It was placed on a griddle and then it was roasted. And then the oil in some sacrifices or the wine in other sacrifices was poured upon the grain offering. And it was done in such a way as to become a pleasing aroma to Yahweh himself, that as, as the community brought their grain and other parts of the community brought their wine or their oil, their offering together would be a right offering to the Lord. And it's, very, it's been a very helpful and profitable experience to meditate on where did these things come from? The grain had to come from a wheat farmer. Wheat farmers do not farm wine. They don't tend vineyards. If the drink offering is to be complete ever, it requires a communal participation, an economy of giving and receiving, which we'll see later in Philippians. So, so Paul is saying, if I'm going to be poured out, then I'm going to rejoice because of what it's going to do with your offering. The meeting of the drink and grain offering was complementary. That is, it bringing these two things together made one right sacrifice, such that that sacrifice was completed and worthy to be received by God. Just as blood and water were spilled from the side of Christ as he offered up his life, Paul considers the possible slaughter, his possible slaughter, as the final chapter in a life lived in faithfulness. I love that word slaughter because it's used so many times in the New Testament to describe all those who wish to come after the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone would come up after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself. He didn't say, if mature Christians would come up after me. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come up after me, let him take up his cross. Paul thinks about his eventual death, his, the slaughter of his life, as the pouring out of his blood, of his life, being the culmination of his work among the Philippians. That that offering would be brought to a close. His death would honor Christ, and not only honor Christ, it would greatly embolden the Philippians. Do you remember what he said in chapter 1? He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really been for the advancement of the gospel. Because those who are with me, the brothers who are with me, have become much more bold. Why did they become much more bold? If you remember, we spent some time thinking about it, that as they saw Paul not recant in the light of the Roman and Jewish persecution, they would see two great things. They would see Paul willingly dying and suffering for the sake of the gospel, expressing two great truths, that Christ is excellent, that Christ is joyful, that Christ is worthy to cling to even in the light of human persecution. And the other thing that those gospel ministers saw in Paul's life, they would see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work causing Paul to not give in, to not recant, to not renounce Christ in the light of his impending death. That is what we saw as the reason why those Christians were emboldened is because in Paul, they saw the worth of Christ that Paul wasn't ready to set aside Jesus for the sake of temporary elimination of suffering, and also that Christ was powerfully sustaining Paul in that moment. And that's why he's able to say to the Philippians in these verses, if I am poured out, you should rejoice with me because you yourselves will be strengthened by the testimony of, Paul's li of his life. If the Philippians see or hear about Paul dying and we hear he didn't recant, then we know Christ is worthy to be clung to to the end. In, in the end of John's writing, well, the, really the transition point of John's gospel in John 13, it says that when Jesus was knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God, he 
then took off his outer robe and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And having loved them, he loved them to the end. That's what it means to honor others or to consider others as more worthy than yourselves, even to the point of death. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He knows that if he turns his back upon Christ in the final chapter of his life, he would not only be lying about the beauty of Christ, he would also be denying the power of the Lord Jesus. And that's why the Philippians can rejoice with him even though he dies. So, therefore, since he loves them, since he desires their good, he is glad and can rejoice with them because they will be strengthened. Their offering of their faith would mix with the offering of his sacrifice and it would be right and pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. Because his death would be answered with the Father like Christ, they should rejoice with him. Have you ever been to a Christian funeral? I've been to Christian funerals that were right and were good. There's a a deep sadness. There is an understanding of the suffering of the temporary death, but there is an expectation and a, a charge in the air of the hope and knowledge that that person, if they've died in Christ, is beholding him now. The difference between a Christian funeral, how these Philippians are supposed to rejoice, and a human, just normal funeral, it could not be any different One is done with sorrow unto sorrow. One is done with sorrow unto extreme joy. So they can rejoice with Paul because they know where he's gone. So as we come to this table today, let us draw near remembering Christ's sacrifice and vindication. Christ did not go to the cross merely being willing to temporarily endure suffering, but he went knowing that he would be vindicated and would be demonstrated as righteous by the Father. Let us resolve by grace to imitate his death in the same hope which he had. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We ask that you would open up these spiritual realities to us. We pray that we would be able to meditate upon the heart and mind of Jesus Christ as he not only produced our justification, but also as he in those moments through the writings of your scripture has become for us a perfect example as to how, how we should conduct ourselves here in the body. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ's glorious, willing, powerful salvation. Lord, we ask that by your spirit, that salvation and resurrection would be applied to us that you would deliver us from the pride and self-seeking which so, so often plagues us and give us to loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. We pray, Lord, that these things would be done remembering your promises and knowing where you're calling us so that in the moment we would work in the strength that you supply, trusting in your promises and worshiping or testifying about your excellencies. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would allow this word to come true in us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.